Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to this um, global data pod uh, on gross external financing needs for um, edge economies uh, focused on frontier economies. Today, I'm joined by uh, a series of distinguished guests from uh, uh, JP Morgan Research. I'll start off with um, Katie, who's worked the most uh, on this uh, note. Uh, Katie is uh, a global uh, emerging economist. She's uh, focused on frontier economies. Uh, then I'm going to move to uh, Ben Ramsey, who is the head of Latin economics. Uh, we're also joined by uh, two economists in uh, our team, uh, Bolohan Taiwa, who is uh, the chief economist for uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and uh, uh, Jintik, uh, who is... Uh, the lead Pakistan economist, uh, he's uh, in uh, EM Asia uh, economics uh, team. Myself, I'm Nikolai Alexandru. I'm um, uh, head of uh, EMEA EM uh, economics. After uh, uh, this uh, short introduction, let me say a few words also about the EMH Data Watch product. This is a product uh, that we started uh, in April last year. It's a week product covering uh, about 30 economies, uh, which are not constantly covered in our uh, flagship Global Data Watch uh, publication. Uh, edge countries, uh, as uh, uh, I'm sure you know, are far from unified, uh, but we aim to provide standardized uh, uh, coverage and value in this manner uh, to uh, uh, investors uh, around the world. Having said all that, I'm going to pass now uh, to Ben uh, to jump in the midst of the discussion. Please, Ben. Thanks, Nikolai. Uh, and, and thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Um, so obviously, there's been a lot of shocks that we've been dealing with in terms of the global economy over the last couple of years. And, and the nature of these shocks have really put a lot of pressure on emerging markets in general, but particularly a lot of the countries that we are covering weekly, as Nikolai said, in this edge product. Um, of course, tighter global financial conditions, higher borrowing costs, uh, edge economies, a number of them, commodity importers needing to deal with, uh, and all the ones that need to deal with uh, higher food prices. Uh, so a number of edge economies have, have basically seen a lot more stress. Some of these have had to turn to the IMF. Some have even gone down the path of, of debt restructurings. Um, we're seeing some of these stresses start to ease on the margins, certainly global food prices, energy inflation, uh, but there's cross currents. Uh, we, we know the Fed looks like with this inflation can maybe start to find, uh, a, 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 you know, ease, not ease yet, but ease the pace. And we'll see about that this week. Uh, and of course, the, the reopening of China has given some tailwinds in terms of uh, the idea of, of what, you know, lower downside risk to global growth. Uh, and also, I think uh, all of this improved risk tone. All that said, we know there's a lot of important risks that remain, and particularly, again, in these EM edge countries, a number of them on the frontier, which have been, uh, you know, dealing with strong amounts of stress. And at the end of the day, as we think about the stress and the binding constraints around them, we're thinking about financing needs. And ultimately, we're thinking about external financing needs in terms of you know, what these countries basically need in order to close their balance of payments in order to, to deal with external uh, debt obligations. Uh, and of course, you know, these binding constraints force uh, policymakers to deal with them. So with that said, uh, Katie, congratulations on leading this, uh, I think, very useful um, uh, report that we put out uh, in these weeks. 
Uh, and let me just turn to you to, to get a little bit more into the details of what we're talking about. So, so Katie, why don't you uh, just to get started, explain to us you know, exactly what are external financing needs? Why do you think they're important? Thanks, Ben. So you, you gave um, the, the listener, uh, you know, an intro into them. Specifically, what we're talking about um, on external financing needs are we, we try to add up all the payments a country needs to make, both for foreign trade and debt service for both the government and the private sector. Then we try to we try to think about where they will gather the resources to pay. If a country's needs, i.e. its bills, exceed its resources, we call that a gap. And that will need to be covered either by making its currency cheaper, reducing its debt payments, or using foreign currency reserves. And as we said, this, this exercise is critical to our toolbox for analyzing the economies because low savings and shallow debt mark, capital debt markets uh, leave these economies more dependent on foreign borrowing. Um, they can shape monetary and fiscal policy. They can lead to policy changes under times of stress, as you said, um, and they can signal debt restriction candidates. So in other words, they're an important part of the economic checkup we do when we analyze these economies. Okay, Katie, so I mentioned we have a number of cross currents here when we think about the global macro landscape. Um, commodity prices are still pretty high. Uh, as I mentioned, China's reopening. Uh, there's there's some uncertainty around that, but overall, we still see global growth set to slow. What does this mean for gross external financing needs in the edge? And and when we do this survey, who do we see as more exposed to risks? Yeah. So what we characterized uh, for many of these economies is that um, it's manageable, but it's not yet comfortable. And we'll get more into detail on that uh, as we you know as we listen to the case studies of Pakistan and Egypt, for example. Uh, but in general, we found the largest gaps in several African economies, uh, like Zambia, Nigeria, and Kenya, uh, which we, you know, we, we, we hope to cover more on the podcast in the future, um, and also El Salvador, um, who paid uh, their uh, a bond maturity last week, uh, which was under, under the spotlight. Uh, we also think it's worth keeping an eye on Asia, um, given the ongoing economic stresses in Sri Lanka and Pakistan, um, some of the financial market stresses in, in Vietnam. Uh, but in general, commodity exporters have about 6% of GDP less in financing needs than the importers. Um, and that's because almost entirely because they're running larger current account surpluses because of where commodity prices are. Uh, where countries are most exposed, uh, many have the backstop of, a, of an IMF program, um, which can which can somewhat mitigate the risks. Uh, but as we said, I think that for us, we feel that it's manageable, but there still certainly are risks, particularly on the funding side. Um, which we can which we can get into. Yeah, great. So I mean, um, that's exactly the point. I mean, so as we were as I mentioned, um, you know, it seems that globally, central banks, including the Fed, are starting to reach you know figure out they're going to reach the end of tightening cycles. And indeed, this is a weekly edge product. We talk about this in this week's edition, so I'd invite the listener to take a look at that one as well. But we think in the edge uh, largely. Interest rate cycles are also reaching um, the, the, their end games, although certainly some edge economies are being forced to still aggressively hike. But the bottom line here is we have interest rates which are high. Uh, so uh, again, this is a, and you mentioned gaps, Katie. So if how do how do these edge economies close funding funding gaps with in this high interest rate environment? Yeah, so we we actually aren't um, in contrast to say five years five years ago six years ago we aren't expecting much in the way of external bond issuance um, as market interest rates are now prohibitively high for many of our set, even though we are seeing that 
capital flows or investment flows into EM in general are starting to pick up. Uh, we are seeing more bond issuance, for example, in January. Uh, but those that tend to have higher credit ratings or higher credit scores, like the GCC economies, Uruguay, Domrep, are expected to come to market. Uh, we also have Egypt, which again, Bolohan can, can speak to. Um, otherwise, we think that economies or, or governments, um, to be more specific, will turn to loans uh, from the IMF. Um, other countries like China, the GCC, the European Union are also coming in um, to, you know, to play a larger role in funding these economies, or they'll turn to commercial loans like banks, syndicated loans, these types of things. Um, we think that the greatest risks um, are existing cases where the private sector has to roll over their debts. Um, so two cases that we, we highlight in the report are Mongolia and Vietnam. Uh, but two stories that were most interesting to us, just given the variety of, you know, stresses and funding sources uh, that we we looked at, uh, were were Egypt and Pakistan. Uh, two stories we cover very closely in the weekly. Uh, so both countries have active IMF programs. Uh, both central banks are playing catch up as macro and FX conditions evolve. Uh, so Pakistan's uh, F large devaluation at the end of last week uh, was a good example of that. Both are commodity importers. So we expect relatively large current account deficits in uh, in those cases this year. Um, and a patchwork of lenders are really going to have to come through, such as the IMF and other governments, to close their gaps. Uh, even though we think that both will more or less manage, uh, you know, there are still stresses, um, particularly in Pakistan, where the starting point is weaker. It has come under pressure, as we said in recent weeks, um, and it needs to do more to build rebuild its reserves, uh, which are are, you know, tenuously low in our opinion. Uh, so, um, you know, turning to Jintag in Pakistan, uh, we've written in the last year about the devastating floods that have hit the country, political uncertainty, high inflation, delays in the IMF program, and now, you know, a, a large FX devaluation in recent days. Can you walk the listener through how Pakistan got to this point? Yeah, thanks, Katie. Thanks, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe I'll just give a quick backdrop of, uh, you know, Pakistan's IMF program. Uh, so it basically started in 2019 when Pakistan was experiencing very high twin deficits, i.e. both fiscal deficit as well as current account deficit. It started off as a $6 billion, um, basically a loan uh, you know, disbursement program uh, spanning over three years until 2022, which was recently extended till 2023. And uh, a lot of the disbursements happened in batches. So these disbursements are basically tied to uh, milestones and certain fiscal certain reforms that um, the recipient country, i.e. Pakistan, has committed to perform. For example, fiscal deficit reductions, um, improving central bank independence, or even SOE reforms. Now, in the past year or so, um, these disbursements have been delayed uh, primarily because of fiscal slippages. So, for example, we have heard of cases where, for example, the former Prime Minister Imran Khan a year ago has basically um, sort of gone against um, you know, what was agreed with the IMF in the sense that he has reinstated or rather introduced widespread energy subsidies in, in the aftermath of the oil price shock back in February 2022. And more recently, the, the new government, which replaced uh, Imran Khan with Sharif administration, has also enacted very widespread uh, subsidies in the form of, um, you know, fuel price subsidies as well as electricity tariff um, freezes uh, to cushion the impact of the floods, which happened back in July and August. Now, the thing about this, uh, the delay in the disbursements is that it has also led to a delay in inflows from other official, you know, um, creditors, whether bilateral or multilateral. So it, because they have to continue to service external debt, uh, what this has happened is that it has actually led to reserves falling, 
from a peak of $21 billion over two years ago, all the way down to less than $5 billion right now, which barely covers one month of import. So, you know, up until I would say very recently, the situation has been quite dire in terms of Pakistan's external financing risk to the point that I think the markets have to have started to seriously consider the prospects of, you know, default or even debt restructuring uh, from Pakistan. So that's where we are right now, essentially. Okay. And do you think the IMF program is at risk? Like what options does the IMF have here, um, given, given the stresses? Yeah, so um, what has really surprised me over the past couple of months is that, you know, um, there is this idea that maybe the IMF will loosen some of the program conditions, especially when it comes to fiscal targets in the aftermath of the floods. After all, the floods are, you know, in a way, uh, a human, uh, rather a natural disaster or an unwanted situation, right? So we were thought that maybe the IMF would, you know, give some leeway to, to Pakistan in terms of meeting some of these very stringent fiscal targets, especially when it comes to in aftermath of the floods where you know the impact on growth is obviously very substantial and it would be very difficult for the for the government to meet the original targets when it comes to uh, whether it's in terms of budget deficits or even uh, primary surplus targets uh, so uh, unfortunately uh, for pakistan uh, the imf has maintained a pretty uh, i would say a hardline stance on these conditionalities so that's why we have a very you know sort of a extended delay when it comes to the ninth eff review which was supposed to start in november but it, you know, the, the delay continues until now. Um, I would say that you know, all this while, you know, from the start of the program, the ball has always been in Pakistan's court. So you know, if 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 IMF is sort of unwilling to shift the goalposts, so to speak, uh, it is really down to Pakistan to do the the right thing or rather the unpopular thing to to really uh, meet some of these very stringent targets for the sake of macro stability. But what we have seen since August is that you know the government seems to have backtracked on some of this. Uh, you know, um, fiscal reform targets. For example, um, in the previous review back in July, uh, the idea is that, you know, Pakistan would need to gradually raise uh, petrol petroleum taxes or excise taxes on petroleum products. But not only have they not done that, but they've actually reinstated, you know, widespread subsidies to cushion if the effect of the floods. Um, so, but, you know, when, when reserves are down all the way down to $5 billion, you know, as they still have to service a lot of this external debt, um, our view is that essentially, you know, push comes to shove, the cost of brinksmanship with the IMF has become basically too high for the government. Um, so, you know, the good thing is over the past two weeks, they have sort of turned around the corner um, and the government has actually unwound a lot of the administrative measures to suppress DOP outflows and inflation. So, for example, as you've mentioned, um, the, the government has actually just lifted the, uh, the interbank cap on, on, on exchange rates, essentially allowing the, the exchange rate to adjust according to market conditions. And for the first time since August, I would say um, the SBP or the central bank has also allowed commercial banks to issue letters of credit for importers, right? So these are some of the measures that hopefully would um, basically come across as goodwill measures from the government. And because of that, you know, hopefully this will hopefully um, increase the odds of a deal with the IMF in, in the coming weeks or in the coming months. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and how does political uncertainty complicate the picture? We know that there are elections coming up um, and, you know, the, again, this can complicate the, the IMF's options. Um, maybe you can just walk the, walk the listener through. Uh, yeah, um, sure. Um, so so the, the political risk really started from, I would say, a year ago uh, when the, uh, the government basically had a no confidence vote or rather the opposition had a no confidence vote against the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. And is, eventually he was voted out of uh, power and replaced by the current administration led by, uh, you know, the, the, the PML party, right? But um, since then, I would say the former Prime Minister Imran Khan 
um, he he managed to galvanize a lot of support from the grassroots. So since then, for example, he has won quite a few key elections, key local elections, for example, in the key state of Punjab. And very recently, he has actually um, dissolved two of the regional assemblies that his party has control over, right? Uh, hoping that he will you know, get a new mandate soon and basically pressurize the federal government to call for early elections. So, you know, the political risk is definitely much higher right now. And the reason why we care a lot about politics is because of, even you know, essentially it comes down to the, the continuity of the IMF program. Now, elections are not due till the third quarter of this year, or maybe the latest October of this year. And the IMF program is due to end June this year. So the risk here is that if Imran Khan manages to um, sort of force uh, the government to call for early elections before, say, the second quarter of this year, and if there's going to be a changing of guard, then, you know, the concern here is that, you know, what would happen to the IMF program, right? So I think that's where the, the source of this political risk and how it ties down to Pakistan's um, IMF program, as well as the macro stability side of things. Mm -hmm. And in the short term, it sounds like um, the funding from other countries will be critical to fund Pakistan, um, given some of these this uncertainty on the IMF program and, and political uncertainty. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So in the absence of IMF disbursements, um, you know, Pakistan has turned to a lot of its um, bilateral creditors in the likes of, say, China, Saudi Arabia and UAE. And it seems like, you know, these countries are very willing to uh, finance Pakistan's deficits. So, for example, in recent weeks, we have heard that, you know, the likes of Saudi Arabia and UAE have actually pledged additional money to the tune of, I would say, three to five billion dollars. Now, theoretically, you know, this this new money would would be able to offset the lack of IMF loans for the rest of the IMF program. But, you know, unfortunately, we haven't really seen uh, actual inflows from these countries. So all, so far, it's just pledges, right? Yeah. So this, this makes us think that, you know, to some extent, I think a lot of this bilateral credit, uh, even though it's on a G2G uh, basis, it's somehow tied to the continuity of the IMF program as well. So that's why mm -hmm. ultimately it is absolutely essential for Pakistan to, um, you know, ensure that this IMF program it's, gets continued and extended. Uh, to really mitigate this uh, external financing risk. Okay, great. No, and and I think that's a that's an interesting um, you know point, and we can con contrast that with with Egypt now. Um, so maybe for Egypt, I'll turn to Nikolai and Bolahan to talk through that story. Thank you again, Jintik. Thanks, thanks both. Um, it's definitely interesting to to hear the discussion around Pakistan, right? It's a it's a country which uh, has tried uh, under successive IMF programs to kind of put itself on the right path um, since basically since uh, Pakistan independence uh, uh, it went through a series of IMF programs and uh, clearly uh, the new administration is uh, is trying again um, Egypt has been also through some IMF programs not as many though as, as Pakistan and um, the recent one it's probably uh, quite important as well for the country. Um, some aspects in, in Egypt are actually similar to those in, in uh, Pakistan. So, But maybe before we go to, to the IMF discussion around uh, uh, Egypt, maybe Bolohan, you can help me understand uh, and also our listeners understand uh, how are the gross external funding needs relevant uh, in the case of um, Egypt. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. And... Uh... And thank you to everyone. I mean, I think, I mean, to look at the gross financing needs of Egypt, I think let's piece the timeline back, you know, maybe five years down the line, basically how they got here. 
like you rightly mentioned, Nico, you know, they've had an IMF program before, they had an IMF program in 2017. And basically, you know, there were significant reforms, particularly on the FX side. And what that did was it spawned a lot of influence and basically made, if you like, the carry trade attractive. Uh, but one of the few drawbacks of, of that move was that the currency was not allowed to continuously appreciate or to continuously be flexible, as you say, not appreciate. Um, and that meant that was positive for the carry trade because investors knew what they were getting, but was negative on the external side in the sense that that along with a loose monetary policy continued to spur wider trade balances, higher current accounts, and ultimately higher gross financing needs. And when you look at those combinations, I mean, we did a piece early last year basically to understand the policy framework of Egypt at the time. And our conclusion basically was the fact that that's de facto peg and sort of the free capital mobility and the loose monetary policy stance was obviously amplifying macroeconomic balances um, in, in Egypt. So that, that was the problem. You know, you had um, current account that was wider um, significantly and that continued so because you had the fixed currency as it were and you had a loose monetary policy stance. Um, and to finance that uh, white current account plus, you know, the amortizations that Egypt had, they needed significant flows. And that's why the carry trade was important. I think at some point in 2020, 2021, the white current account was totally financed by foreign portfolio investor flows. But when you now move forward to last year, you know, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and global monetary policy tightening as global central banks started to react um, to, um, to higher inflation, then you had a reversal of those flows. And, and that's where Egypt, you know, got into the, if you like, problem that you found yourselves where you now had a wide current account deficit still, you had high gross financing needs still, and financing it now um, would, was a problem. And of course, that's where you know they had to go to the IMF to get some funding um, for the program. Okay, that's um, a good um, uh, introduction uh, on Egypt, and and uh, I indeed remember the note uh, we had, uh, uh, kind of uh, highlighting uh, the loose monetary policy, but also the oh. the need uh, for um, exchange rate adjustment, and we got some of that, or maybe we got yeah. it all. Um, now, now the question would be. What what does IMF hope to get uh, in this uh, program uh, with with Egypt? And uh, Egypt used to have homegrown programs, right? I guess this one it's another homegrown program, right? So that's correct. probably the the better formulation would be what what do the IMF and Egypt together? What do they hope to achieve? Yeah, I mean from from a broader perspective, uh, I mean the program basically just aims to you know preserve macroeconomic stability restore the buffers that, that were sort of, you know, depleted um, from, from last year. And also, like you say, it's a it's it's home, homegrown program. So to basically pave the way for more inclusive growth um, and private sector-led growth in the economy. And, and to achieve this, I think, I think there are um, about four, four key things that, that needs to happen or that, and they have started happening um, in terms of the agreement between the authorities and the IMF. The first, of course, is a permanent shift to a flexible exchange rate regime. You know, we've, we've started to see that, you know, the currency, at least in the past couple of weeks, has been, well, appreciating at times, depreciating at times. So we've started to see some form of volatility 
and flexibility there. That, you know, the IMF and authorities hope is going to help to be more resilient against against shocks and improves Egypt's export um, competitiveness as well. So that's the first thing, a permanent shift to, the, to, to, to a flexible exchange rate regime. The second point and, and also important point is monetary monetary policy that is aimed to bring down inflation. I mean, with the currency depreciating quite a bit, I mean, it's lost almost half of its value in the past one year, inflation is always bound to rise. So that monetary policy tightening would be critical um, in some ways to to basically bring inflation back down to sort of the, the plus or minus 2%, percent that, that the CBE's target are. The third thing and which I think, you know, give the Egyptians some credit on this already is on fiscal consolidation. I mean, since 2018, 2019, they've been running a primary deficit, but now the IMF expects that to be closer to sort of 2% towards the end of the program and ultimately reduce debt accumulation and bring debt to GDP down sustainably. The final one, and I think perhaps you know even more important for this program and, and linked to the homegrown reform programs, is, is the structural reforms. And the structural reforms basically is aimed at reducing this this state imprint in in most of the key sectors of the economies that is going to be led by by the government's privatization drive, and and more importantly, is supposed to help to attract GCC flow. So if you look at this program. The bulk of the financing and, and the reserve build up, the net international reserve build up that the IMF is expecting, the bulk of those flows are expected to come from multilateral partners and, and, and regional partners as well. And GCC support is a very critical part of that. What amounts uh, should we expect from from the partners in the region? I mean, this is clearly a topic, as as Jintik was mentioning, right? I mean, yeah. Pakistan also needs to rebuild reserves and depends on some partners, right? So, uh, would be good to to have an idea what's expected from those partners and how likely it is that uh, those amounts are going to materialize. I mean, since since the beginning of last year, um, we've we've had you know commitment, um, particularly on foreign direct investments uh, from GCC partners, not of fifteen, closer to twenty billion dollars. Now, some of that, you know, I've started to come in. We saw a few of that late last year into some equity investment, about two billion on one side, and about another two billion, um, into some, into some stocks and and companies there. But when you look at the IMF program, the expectation is that at least Within the next six months, that's fiscal year ending June, there should be at least about $2 billion that should come from there. In the next fiscal year, which is ending June 2024, there should be at least about $4 billion coming from there. From the multilateral point of view, between now and ending June um, fiscal year, the expectation is that you know between the IMF, the World Bank, the Arab Development Money um, um, Fund, there should be somewhere around five, five and a half billion dollars. So that is supposed to help to, you know, increase the buffers and basically help the central bank to achieve its NRR targets that have been set um, in the IMF program. Consider those targets. Uh, are they realistic? Are they optimistic? I mean, they are. I think they are to the extent that global financing conditions allow it. Um, I think that's the way I would put it. Um, when I look at the IMF target, for instance, for what they expect from, from foreign portfolio investment, bearing in mind that foreign portfolio investment as a combination of portfolio investment into non-resident holding in, in, of, of the domestic debt securities and on the other hand, external issuances. On, on, on the non-resident holdings, I think it's fair. They have about $1.2 billion. But I think they're expecting gross issuances not of $5 billion this year now. When you consider, you know, the sort of global environment that we are, 
that we are in currently and the prospect of issuances and then you know Katie was alluding to it earlier as well for most of these countries is very limited um, but authorities are looking at other sources um, like the Sukuk for instance they expect to get about a billion dollars from that there's the Pandai bond and, and, and Samurai bond that they probably expect to get 500 million dollars each but in terms of euro bond issuances in itself um, I think that might be where there could be a gap so that's why in our own we we estimate a, a reserve build of about 3.6 billion dollars versus what the IMF expects about 6 billion dollars in the fiscal year and in June. Uh, private sector sources like euro bonds and let's say uh, local debt uh, acquisition by by non-residents are these the main risks around uh, the gross external financing needs in the case of Egypt? Yes, I would say I would say yes that, that those those are key risks. But I think that you know the the structural reform program is key. Um, authorities need to be committed on the structural reform program because they are supposed to put up assets that will be of interest to to those willing buyers, particularly in the GCC region. Um, there is always concerns, and even the IMF noted this as well, that within the country there might be concerns that about some of the assets not being want to be sold and all of that. So I think I think in addition to the, to those points, I think that is a key that is a key um, risk as well. Plus, you know, just don't know what the global what the global environment could look like in the next next three to six months. Thank you for that, uh, Bolohan. Thank you uh, to Jintik as well uh, for uh, the discussion on um, Pakistan. And obviously, uh, great thanks to uh, Katie and uh, Ben as well. Uh, thanks to our listeners for joining us and looking forward uh, to our next edition. Please uh, join us next time. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its contest for more information, including important disclosures, 2023 JP Morgan Chase and company all rights reserves. This episode was recorded on January 30, 2023.